This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, February 17th, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include a mixed assortment of updates and security fixes for a wide range of devices and operating systems poured out of Cupertino this week. We'll sort out the details. Keep an eye out for new warnings from Microsoft for a very old security problem that just might affect Macs. And we'll take a look at end-to-end encryption. It's a term you hear a lot, but what exactly does it have to do with your security and data privacy? Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm okay. We've got windstorms here, and I don't think I've ever seen winds inland as high as what we're supposed to get on Friday. We may get up to 70-mile-an-hour gusts. Wow. So I'm going to be battening down hatches, as they say. Yeah, well, stay safe. Yep. Okay. So speaking of staying safe, have you updated your iPhone, iPad, Mac, Watch, Apple TV, HomePod, (laughs) everything? (laughs) Not everything. Well, yeah, actually everything except for Apple TV. And on another interesting point, watchOS, although watchOS did receive an update, it didn't update for this particular vulnerability. So there was one vulnerability that Apple patched for macOS, iOS, and iPadOS. And this was a WebKit vulnerability, which again is the underlying engine behind Safari and it's used all throughout the operating system. And there was one particular security issue that Apple described as processing maliciously crafted web content may lead to arbitrary code execution. Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited. So in other words... So in other words, this is a zero-day vulnerability, right? It's a zero-day vulnerability. It was used in, in the wild, in active attacks, or at least in one active attack that Apple is aware of. They don't tell us like how widespread this was, but they're aware of an issue where this was actively exploited. So that's pretty serious. Um, And so it's important to make sure that you've got all your devices updated. Again, Mac, any iOS or iPadOS device. And interestingly, they released a a macOS Monterey 12.2.1. And then if you have Big Sur or Catalina, which again, we recommend that you're on Monterey if at all possible to make sure you're getting all the security updates. But at the very least, they did update Safari 15.3 for those two previous Mac operating systems as well. Now this WebKit vulnerability didn't get patched for watchOS. Uh, it didn't get patched for tvOS. I don't know if it just didn't affect those platforms or if maybe it wasn't being actively exploited on this platform. So maybe they'll patch it later on. But in any case, make sure you've got all those devices updated. And there's an agency that I've only heard about in recent months called the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And they are ordering federal agencies to update iPhones and Macs quickly because of this zero-day vulnerability. Right, exactly. If Because of this known active attack, they want to make sure that all federally owned iPhones, iPads, and Macs are updated no later than February 25th to a version of those operating systems that addresses this vulnerability. So it's being taken seriously by the U.S. government, for sure. Now, we mentioned this CISA, CISA, I don't know, sometime last year when they made another recommendation. And 
I hadn't heard of it then. They were only founded in 2018. So is it only recently that they're actually becoming active and issuing these sorts of alerts? It's a pretty recent thing. Yeah. Now, now that they're taking a look at all of these actively exploited vulnerabilities and in particular those, they want to make sure that, that any government system that may be vulnerable is getting patched relatively quickly. Maybe not as quickly as some system administrators for other organizations might patch, but then you know, the U.S. government has a lot of systems that need to be patched across a lot of different agencies. So at least they're trying to standardize and ensure that important systems are getting updated quickly. On the Wikipedia page for this agency, there is a performance section. On December 17, 2020, it was revealed that several U.S. agencies had been hit by a massive months-long intrusion by overseas hackers suspected to be from Russia. And a lot of these state-sanctioned hacking events have occurred in recent years. Maybe this is one of the reasons why this agency needs to come out and alert people, because maybe there's small departments without big IT staffing that need to know when something important comes like this. Right. There was also another update. Uh, so that was last week on the 10th, on February 10th. On February 14th, this last past Monday, Apple released a couple of more updates. Now, this is really interesting. <laughs> so there were two mysterious security updates for macOS Big Sur and macOS Catalina. Uh, normally, whenever Apple releases a security update that they call out and specifically say this is a security update, they will give some information about what exactly was fixed in that update. And Apple hasn't done that. They haven't given a single clue as to what exactly was fixed. They just say this update has no published CVE entries, meaning there's no like you know, numbered vulnerability that we're going to point to. So it's a little bit unclear exactly what was patched. And um, was this something that was previously patched in macOS Monterey? We don't really know. So if you are running one of the older operating systems, again, we recommend that you actually update to Monterey to make sure that you're getting all of the important updates. Well, to be fair, if you go to the Apple Security Updates page and scroll down, they've done this in the past. In November of last year, there's another one for the Apple Watch in October. So there are a few cases like this, but it is relatively rare. What's different here is that the, these are updates that are specifically called out as being security updates. There's no other purpose for these updates besides security. And to my knowledge, at least looking back through all of Apple's security update release history, they've never issued an update that specifically and only addressed security issues, but didn't give any details about what those issues were. Most of the time in the past when they've given no uh, CVE entries, usually it's something that addressed other things too. So maybe they were patching other non-security bugs in that particular update. Um, so I, I don't know what Apple's doing, why they're being so secretive. Okay, we've talked a lot about AirTags since they were first released and very recently talking about some of the stalkers that have been arrested. Apple has announced that they're making a number of updates to the way AirTags are managed, to the way the alerts are provided, the types of sounds they give and all. And I think the real takeaway here is, first of all, this is not available yet. This is coming soon. 
But the takeaway is that they kind of released these without thinking too much about how they could be used nefariously. And on the plus side, they're benefiting from a lot of data. But on the downside, there are a lot of people who have been stalked with these. And I think this is a really important reputational thing for Apple, that these shouldn't be seen as stalker devices, but seen as devices to find lost things. Yeah, they're definitely being used in ways that Apple did not intend for them to be used. One of the things that they're doing, and they're basically doing, I would boil this down into really two things that they're doing. There's precision finding. So they want to make it easier for someone who is being stalked, you know, or has an AirTag near them, maybe perhaps without their consent that's been following them around. They're making it easier if you have an iPhone 11 or later you can find exactly where that AirTag is, just like you can if you own an AirTag and you have uh, an iPhone 11 or later, you can find it very easily in Find My. It'll actually kind of navigate you even within a room. Now you'll be able to do that if it doesn't belong to you, but it's been following you around. The other thing that they're doing is now you're going to get a, a louder alert sound. So they're going to be tweaking the audible uh, alert to make sure that it sounds a little bit louder and to make it a little bit easier to track down. Now, of course, that doesn't prevent somebody from disabling the speaker like we talked about last week that some people are actually selling those on eBay and Etsy. But at least if you have an unmodified AirTag, it'll now make a louder alert if it's been following you. Now, I pointed out in a recent episode that one day in January, I was with my partner and we were driving, doing some errands, went to the supermarket, and I got an alert on my iPhone saying, your current location can be seen by the owner of this AirTag. And we go out together often in the car. It was either her home keys or car keys, one or the other. And it was the only time I've seen that. It hasn't happened before or since. And I found that surprising. I thought for a moment, was this a new feature? But if that's the case, why doesn't it happen more often? And I think... Apple kind of needs a way to say, okay, you're near an AirTag. If you know whose it is, turn it off. In the Find My app, when you get this alert, you can pause the safety alerts. But why would I get this once and not again? I didn't pause the safety alerts. So I think this isn't very clear. And I'm, I'm curious to see if when Apple makes these changes, I'll be seeing more alerts like that. Yeah, I, I think Apple definitely needs to to continue to evolve this because um, there's a lot more that Apple probably could be doing to make this even better. I, I'm, I'm happy about any steps that they're making in this direction, though. I think these are some good changes. Okay, macroviruses, Word and Excel. That was the first type of malware that I ever had. Back when I was working as a translator, I would get documents sent by translation agencies that had been from a client company to a translation agency to translators and back and forth. And I got macroviruses. The weirdest one was the one that like made half of the menu items in my menus disappear. And like, why would it do that? So finally what is this, more than 25 years after Microsoft actually shipped a virus on a CD-ROM, they're changing the way macroviruses are detected and they're changing the warnings that you get in Microsoft Word and Excel. Now, for a long time, you didn't get any warnings. And for a long time, you didn't have this automatic deactivation, but they're updating the way this works now. Right. For many years now, if you've opened a Microsoft Word or Excel document that includes a macro, You'll get a little bar across the top of the document that says security warning macros have been disabled uh, and this bar shows up in yellow and you get a little button that says enable content. So what they're, of, of course, what bad guys have done is they've made a fake, you know, alert somewhere within that document that says 
make sure you click enable content for this thing to work properly, right? I mean, kind of obvious that they would do that. So what Microsoft is changing is now this bar, instead of being yellow, it's going to be red, <laughs> but it's not just that. They, it now says security risk. Microsoft has blocked macros from running because the source of this file is untrusted and no longer is there a button to enable content. Now the button says learn more and they will actually take you to the Microsoft website where they explain a little bit more about macros and why you shouldn't necessarily trust them. So, no longer is it so easy to enable macros in a file that may actually contain a macro virus. Now, one thing I don't understand is when you go to that Microsoft web page, it looks like you can only enable the macros if you're on Windows because they talk about right-clicking a file in the Windows Explorer and selecting a checkbox, and they don't give a Mac option for that. So obviously, we don't know what's going to happen on a Mac with this new system. Right. Not quite clear yet, but I, I guess it's good that they're making changes in this direction. Of course, macro viruses are something that can be cross-platform and can infect Macs. Um, so uh, at the very least, we're, we're happy that Microsoft is finally making some changes for the better in this case. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about why you need end-to-end -end encryption. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego world-class protection and utility software for Mac users made by the Mac security experts. Okay, we wanted to talk about end-to-end -end encryption. And what brought this up is the UK government is planning a PR blitz to try and paint end-to-end -end encryption as something that's dangerous. And they're talking about protecting children, for example. The fact that people use secure messaging and they can communicate with children or send pictures without the spies being able to see them means that they think children are at risk. And this is certainly partly true. But the problem is, if we didn't have end-to-end -end encryption, there's not much we could do on the internet, is there? Well, yeah, really, the entire internet kind of relies on end-to-end encryption now because we live in a in a day and age where uh, you know we do all kinds of really important transactions online. It's not just banking. I mean, you want to make sure that anytime you log into any website, that nobody's going to be able to intercept that traffic see everything that you're doing on the internet. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons why you really want to have end-to-end -end encryption everywhere. Am I mistaken or was there a period 
with Netscape, where you weren't allowed to use it outside the U.S. because it was considered to be exporting military technology because of the HTTPS or other encryption it had? Well, I do recall that there was a time when it was illegal to export anything higher than 40-bit encryption, if I remember right. That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so there were two versions of Netscape Navigator that you could get. This was back in the 90s, I guess. Um, you could either get the 40-bit exportable encryption version, or you could get the 128-bit version, which was allowed to be used only within the U.S. because that's where the technology was developed. So it was, yeah, 40-bit encryption, of course, the reason why it was okay to export was because the U.S. government knew how to break it. Yeah. But back in the day, 40-bit wasn't breakable by normal hackers because we didn't have the processing power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you had to have a probably a supercomputer cluster or something like that, which was something that, you know, the average person did not have back then. Now, every computer that we've had for decades has been a supercomputer. Yeah. Including you, you, the phone in your pocket. <laughs> exactly. You'd, you'd have to have a Cray or something back then. Yeah. Yeah. It was much more difficult to do sort of brute force cracking of encryption back then. So we want to just go through some of the reasons why you need end-to-end encryption. And I have an article on the Intego Max Security blog, which I'll link to in the show notes. And the first thing I mentioned in the article is online banking. Now, let's just understand what end-to-end encryption is. You have data on your computer. Someone else has data on their computer. Let's say it's a server like a bank or someone else. And it's between their computer and your computer that's encrypted so no one can get that data along the way. One of the reasons why this is important is there's not a straight line between your computer and a server. And I give an example in the article of the, a tool called Traceroute that sends packets from one IP address to another and shows the number of servers at which it goes through. And in my example, it's going through seven servers. A couple of them seem to be on the same network, so it could be two various devices in the same company, but there's still four discrete IP address ranges. And if your data is not encrypted when you're connecting to your bank, for example, then, well, anyone could find out your banking data. Right. In fact, this traceroute tool, and, and you mentioned in your article, you use an online version of this tool. You can actually do this right from the terminal on, on your Mac. Uh, if you type in traceroute, T-R-A-C-E-R-O-U-T-E, space, and then any domain or IP address, you get this nice list of Everything from your IP on your home network all the way to the ultimate server that you're trying to go to. And it shows you every hop, they call it, every computer that exists in between that that chain. Because in most cases, when you're trying to get to another server, you've got to go through, first of all, your internet service provider, of course. And of course, uh, then the, say the website that you're going to, they have an internet service provider as well. So there's some different networks you're going to have to traverse in order to get from point A to point B. So for banking, the only way you can use banking is if you have end-to-end encryption. If not, you can't be sure that your data is getting to the bank, that your data is not being read in between, and you just couldn't do that. The second example is online shopping. And Jeff Bezos would not be a billionaire if not for end-to-end encryption, because if you weren't able to put a credit card number into a website and trust that it wouldn't be copied along the way, remember all those hops, all those servers where anyone could be just collecting the data and at other locations, then you could lose your credit card number. People could empty your account. 
it almost sounds like I'm trying to make this sound worse than it could be, but it actually could be that bad if we didn't have end-to-end encryption. Right. So now banking and shopping, these are things that people think about a lot when they think about why we need end-to-end encryption. But there's a whole bunch of other things that you've listed in this article. Uh, one thing that is interesting is you mentioned uh, iMessage and, and, of course, other messaging platforms like Signal, WhatsApp, Telegram, and others. Uh, even Facebook Messenger, right? We don't want people to be able to intercept our messages that are sent uh, from one person to another. Now, SMS is kind of a different thing. As we mentioned a lot on on the show, you should at least assume that your text messages are readable by your telephone company, the mobile phone provider. They're going to be able to see the content of your text messages if they want to. So that's not to say that they are reading your texts, um, but they actually can read them, which is uh, maybe a little bit disconcerting. So that green bubble that you get when you're texting with somebody who uses Android, those messages are readable by your mobile phone provider. And not just by a mobile phone provider, by intelligence agencies, by the NSA that, that hoovers up data and analyzes it looking for keywords. If you believe Edward Snowden. <laughs> well, there's no reason to not believe him because one of the reasons why governments don't want end-to-end encryption is so they can access secure messaging. But for anything that's not SMS, you, you do want to make sure that those messages are encrypted from point A to point B, that nobody else can intercept them. Okay, similar to text messages is video chats or even audio chats where talking over Skype right now, you may be using FaceTime or Zoom or Skype audio, video, either one. You don't want people being able to hear what you say. And think about businesses that use video chats very often, especially since COVID. They don't want this sort of industrial espionage of companies trying to hack in to their servers to find out when they're talking about new products or you know patents and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Th- this is something that Say, for example, maybe you want to share a password securely with somebody and, you know, let's say that they don't have an iPhone, so you can't send them an iMessage. You might have the idea, well, okay, well, I can create a video call with them and we can discuss it over uh, over a call. Um, That's one way to do it. But of course, if we didn't have into an encryption then that may not necessarily be a trustworthy way to share something with them without someone else being able to intercept it. So again, you always want that encryption to be in place because you never know. There's there's things that you want to make sure don't get into the wrong hands. You probably take lots of photos with your iPhone or Android phone, and you probably keep them in the cloud. And there's a company up there storing them, whether it's Apple or Google or Flickr or a different company. Now, my photos are boring. They're cat photos and photos of friends and places I've been. But some people may have photos that aren't that boring. I think one of the celebrities whose iCloud account was hacked a few years ago was Jennifer Lawrence, and she had lots of nude photos, and they leaked, and it's embarrassing. And if you want to take nude photos and send them to someone, that's your right. But you don't want these to not be encrypted. In this case, she was hacked. I think it was someone figured out the answers to the security questions or something. But you don't want someone to be able to just hack into iCloud or Google Photos and and snarf up a whole bunch of photos. 
Well, and remember, you also don't want an employee of one of these companies to be able to get your sensitive photos as well. Once again, it's it's important to make sure that there's uh, a, a level of encryption that prevents even people employed at these companies where you're hosting your, your pictures from being able to see them without your consent. The same goes for other files you store in the cloud. Now, we're currently using iCloud Drive to share files for the podcast in the past. I've used OneDrive and I use Dropbox sometimes. So most people use a cloud service to store some files. Now, in my case, I've got professional files that are with companies I'm working for. And I've got personal files like financial records that I keep in the cloud. So I have access to them on different devices. And that's the really sensitive stuff that you really don't want to not be encrypted. You don't want someone, let's say they can hack into your Wi-Fi network And they can trap the data that you're sending. And who knows what they could get? Maybe they're getting the database for your password manager, for example. That's a really good point. Most of the examples that we're giving, we're talking about the point A to point B through the Internet. But, you know, when you're when you're talking about your own home network, we use Wi-Fi all the time now. Uh, Once upon a time, everything was connected with wires. But, um, you know, most of the time we're connected to a wireless network now. And that needs to have encryption as well that you don't want other people to be able to break into, because if they can intercept even the communications on your own home network, then again, there's all sorts of information that people could get about you, potentially sensitive information. So Wi-Fi is actually another place where you want to make sure that you've got good, strong encryption. Okay. Email, just like with text messages, your email is sent and received using end-to-end encryption. Now, emails themselves are not encrypted. I'll link in the show notes to an article about secure email services where you can actually make it so the body of the email is encrypted, but you connect to an email server with a protocol called TLS, which provides provides an encrypted connection, the same, similar to HTTPS for websites. Now, the email server that's storing your emails may not be encrypted, and you have to trust the company hosting your email to have good security, but at least along the way between you and the server, there is encryption to protect your emails. Right, exactly. And and as Kirk mentioned, there, there are some email providers that may be better than others in that regard. So we'll link to that article comparing a few examples like ProtonMail and Tutanota that you can use if if you want to have a little bit more secure, a little bit more private email. Okay, your identity and your online accounts are important. Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, forums, you must have encryption so that when you log into an account, no one can intercept your username and password. If someone does, they can log in as you and they could contact your friends and family as if it was you. There's an interesting scam that goes on, and this happens sometimes by email, but also on Facebook. Someone on Facebook will create an account that has the same name and photo of someone else. Then they'll contact family members and saying, I'm stuck in Spain and I've lost my wallet and credit card. Can you send me money? Sometimes this comes from a hacked email account, but you want to make sure that no one can get into your actual account and pretend that they're you and potentially damaging your reputation by posting things that you wouldn't post on Facebook or Twitter or anything else. Now, this might seem a bit far-fetched, but I remember a time that was not terribly long ago when 
websites didn't use HTTPS everywhere. And there was actually a really cool, uh, well, cool depending on your perspective, but there was a utility, an extension that you could install in Firefox that would allow you to be able to intercept someone's uh, session cookies and basically spoof their identity. You could go to a cafe Wi-Fi network, just, you know, pop open your computer and, uh, oh yeah, that person over there, I want to see what they're looking at on Facebook and log into their account. And that was entirely possible to do that. Now we have HTTPS everywhere. Again, that's, that means you're, you have an encrypted connection to that website. And it's because of that, that we can't as easily do things like that cookie hijacking anymore. Okay, working from home, think about how it was for Apple, one of the more secretive tech companies, when COVID lockdown came and people had to work from home. If they didn't have end-to-end encryption, they simply could not have done that. And it's not just Apple, it's government agencies, it's all sorts of businesses, because they're dealing with really confidential information. And again, the risk of a man in the middle being able to access that information is just too great for companies. And had COVID happened 20 years ago, I don't know what all these companies would have done. They would have had to like, have couriers taking DVDs back and forth to people to, to transfer data. And the final example I give is personal data on government and healthcare websites. Like all the other websites, if you file your income tax online, you've got a lot of personal data. If you have health insurance that you manage online, it's similar things. And like all the other examples here, end-to-end encryption ensures that this data, which could be used against you in many ways, is not accessible to people who try to intercept the data along the way. And of course, we hope that those government entities, uh, your tax preparers, that they're all using some good encryption on their end when that data is at rest as well. But at the very least, you know, into an encryption is important to make sure it gets to them and that you can receive information from them securely. Okay, that's enough for this week. Until next week, Josh, stay encrypted and stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.